This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to researcher Nathan Rusa about the ongoing conflict in Myanmar or Burma. One year ago today, there was a military coup and ever since there have been very serious clashes which evolved into outright guerrilla warfare. There are dozens and dozens of resistance factions now, rebels fighting against the junta. Nathan's going to speak to us and tell us what's happening in Myanmar. If you like what we're doing, please support us for extra content at patreon.com slash popularfront. So I think we'll get into the various different factions and the battles soon. Um, but just to remind people, maybe you can just kind of briefly go into, um, you know, what is it that happened in Myanmar, Burma, this this new situation with the military junta. There's now many, many different militant factions fighting against them. Maybe just give us an idea of, you know, what, what's been going on over the last year or so. Yeah, so when you look at look at Myanmar's history more generally, you can see that there's a lot of a, a lot of streams of military dictators leading the country. And sort of in 2012 and then more so in 2015, it started opening up a bit. The the sort of military started making some concessions to the civilian political parties, and they had, I think it's fair to say, overwhelming success at any elections that were given. So the the military had sort of stacked the decks in a way where they'd um, guaranteed themselves a certain amount of seats that guaranteed themselves enough sort of representation in parliament no matter what happens that they can veto whatever they want and they can sort of be in charge of whatever they actually want but when it comes to the parts of parliament that were democratically elected it was basically 90 percent plus going towards this um national league for democracy which was unsung Suu Kyi's party mm. that had sort of risen through the ranks through all of this um, student protests and all of these protests against military rule for the last 30, 40 years. But in November 2020, there was the most recent election where, um, again, the NLD won an overwhelming majority of seats. And so for the months between sort of November and February, the military was crying foul a lot. They were sort of trying to push this idea that the election had been rigged and that they had actually won more seats than the results showed. Um, of course, there was no evidence for this, but that was a line that they were pushing for months and months leading up to what turned out to be the coup. Um, and I think, I think very memorably, two days before the coup occurred, there was this, um, the, there was the headlines in all of the Myanmar news basically saying that the military refused to rule out a coup. And then two days later, First thing on February 1st, you saw the tanks rolling in through Napier You saw, which is the capital, and you saw basically the whole country put under military rule for a couple of days while this coup took place. All of the democratically elected um, politicians got arrested, a lot of the activists got arrested, and a lot of um, just general civil society got detained as part of this coup. Um, so for the first couple of days following the coup, there was this this um, almost, I guess, shocked silence. Although it was sort of widely, people were pe people sort of had this idea that this could be coming. There, no one really knew how to respond to it originally. And then within a few days, the protests sort of started organising, 
and the major cities started having quite large demonstrations against this military coup. And I think what's important to also note is that in those sort of eight to five to eight years where there was increasing democratization, it sort of gave this growing generation in Myanmar a, t- a taste of freedom that Myanmar hadn't really had before. Um, so there were a lot more people now that were willing to resist and willing to protest. Um, and then very quickly, I, I should I should mention that the, the Tatmadaw, which is the name for the military and the state administration council, um, they had sort of envisioned some protests. So for the first couple of weeks, where they, for the fir- for the first little while where there were protests, it was all, all actually quite calm and quite peaceful. There were very large peaceful protests in the city, but they weren't sort of being met with this mass um, repression and mass violence that we saw later. But I think that in a way gave a lot of the rest of the country that wasn't so much in these big cities the confidence to come out and protest as well. So within sort of two weeks of the coup, you had in basically the entire country protesting, not just the big cities, but the rural townships and even these tiny little hamlets, whoever was basically there would come out with their um, NLD flags and march against the military. And that's sort of where the military's, um, I guess, tolerance for protests ended. And they launched these very large, very violent um, clearance operations is what they called them. But in essence, hundreds of people were sort of being shot on the streets. And you had, um, in some memorable occasions, you had sort of troops basically surrounding protest camps, trapping them from exiting and then just opening fire. So you had this mass movement of opposition, organised peaceful opposition, that was then met with this mass violence all across the country. And you had people being killed in base, you had protesters being killed in basically every city in Myanmar, from the largest ones to quite small towns. Whenever the police sort of encountered these protests, and a lot of these smaller towns do have police stations, generally the answer would be violence after the first few weeks of the coup. And so there was a bit of time where um, basically the Burmese community kept protesting quite peacefully, kept sort of trying to come out on the streets, and they sort of pushed for international um international intervention to sort of hold the military accountable for these massacres. And you saw this massive movement of um, responsibility to protect and sort of saying that if the Burmese government does this to us, then we need the rest of the international community to step in. And as can sort of be expected, the international community didn't really do anything. There were a few sanctions on key leaders and not even every country. So I'm from Australia and Australia hasn't sanctioned anyone from Myanmar since the coup. Um, and then it was sort of when the protesters and the organised resistance started realising that they can't win on the streets mm. and they have to sort of physically stop the military's takeover. They have to sort of form quite, the start especially, it was very improvised armed oppositions. You sort of had, um, you had like air guns, like pressurised air guns that shot marbles being used to defend protest camps in big cities. You had sort of sometimes hunting rifles being used, but that actually was a bit later. But yeah, it's sort of in March and April and May, there was this, I guess, countrywide almost realisation that 
there needed to be something more than protests to stop these um to stop the military takeover mm. and then that's sort of how that coalesced into what turned out to be very widespread and sort of unprecedentedly large organized armed resistance right yeah i think it's a real textbook case of the people going right we are trying to do it peacefully we are trying to to say look you know we don't want this and then it got to the point where it's like okay well now we actually have to engage violently they did everything they tried to um and yeah like you said people were just getting mown down like shot to bits killed by the military in the streets you're talking about people holding up flags getting shot with semi-automatic rifles for nothing you know what i mean it wasn't even people throwing stones at the start right it was just like right people are just getting killed i've seen some you know really quite brutal footage coming out of there yeah so once sort of the military started responding with these um well with with deadly force you sort of did see this improvised sort of protest um this improvised sort of protest defense where they had sort of very makeshift shields you had like there's always those stories of people going to protest with the backpack full of school books and textbooks as hoping that to be like an improvised sort of bulletproof vest yeah um and sort of there were there were like stones being thrown and there were sort of the the normal response to try to defend it but it definitely there was widespread repression sort of a death toll that reached over a thousand people before there started being this yeah really organized and really countrywide resistance armed resistance i should say yeah and that is now turned from people going right we need to take you know guns out onto the streets to really quite well organized militia movements now we know that there have been various different ethnic militias for what 80 years now i think that they've been fighting the government not just this military junta but it's not just that right it's like normal um mostly young men just going out and joining various groups forming their own um paramilitary militia factions we've got the uh the people's defense forces now as a result of all of that um explain to us what that is yeah, so in the backdrop of all of what I was talking about previously, there are these decade-long, generally ethnic conflict that's been happening in Myanmar. So the oldest rebel group, the um, Karen National mm. Liberation Army, formed about 18 months, two years after the country got independence. And so there has been this sort of constant perennial conflict in Myanmar that has sort of in many ways been relegated to the periphery there was there was a communist um uprising in the 60s 70s and 80s that sort of migrated from the center of myanmar to the coat to the um borders but other than that it had sort of been relegated to the to the border regions and i guess the ethnic regions is what they're often considered as and so there are a suite of sort of 10 to 15 ethnic armed actors that are quite formidable and in various states of conflict with the military when the coup happened, it was actually quite a peaceful time. The the Arakan army, which was the largest and the most, I guess, dangerous armed group prior to the coup, immediately prior to the coup, had signed a ceasefire. And most of the large, formidable ethnic armed organisations had laid down their arms temporarily. Um, but then this protest and this the, the crackdown and this organised armed resistance came to the Burman sort of majority that lives in the the lower regions of Myanmar, the lowlands, and this traditionally sort of peaceful area. Um, so you sort of had each township in a way organising its own defence. And you had 
it's hard to sort of say who was the leaders of them, but you sort of had these organic township level sort of armed militias coming up where they sort of scrounged together homemade arms. Those, those um, pressurized air guns were a lot, were very heavily featured in the early days, but in some of the sort of areas closer to those ethnic armed conflicts, there were sort of arms moving around. So for example, in the West of the country in Chin state, there were a lot of hunting rifles, Tumi guns, they're called. And you sort of started seeing these, Actually, the largest, the most sort of notable account is in a city called Calais, which is in a place um, sort of near the Chin Hills. And you started getting these armed protest guards sort of looking out after the protest huts with these little um, hunting rifles that had been used for decades, sort of 30 years, flintlock sort of stuff, mm. where you can shoot a single bullet at a time, then you have to spend four or five minutes reloading that had traditionally been used for yeah, hunting in the region. Um and then you sort of had other groups that had close connections to um, some of the ethnic armed organisations, and that that sprung up largely from people fleeing the repression. They fled the repression to the areas controlled by these ethnic armies, especially the um, Kachin Independence Army and the, the Karen Liberation Army, um, the KNLA. And so they, they started to be sort of, especially urban youth sort of started doing training courses and started doing military training courses under the guise of these ethnic armed organizations. And so it took sort of a few weeks, a couple of months, but you sort of then started seeing these, yeah, very, very township level, um, quite local armed resistance groups forming. And they, they were very sort of ragtag. They were very um, unorganized, but then, through the following months, the the they started sort of different groups started working together, forming basically what you see in Syria, where they sort of formed local, like within an umbrella of a few townships, some um, defense rooms, and sort of started doing that, um, slowly coalescing towards a common cause, and in many cases, sort of reaching out to the government in exile, the national unity government, and sort of showing that they were on the same side as the national unity government, willing, willing to listen to them and willing to sort of work together in a more organised way than just this township got together 200 people that were wanting to fight and managed to give most of them guns. Right. I think this is such an interesting situation. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of examples, but I can't think directly right now. But it's not it's not like um, you've got previously kind of ethnic militants swarming the city to fight the, the junta, taking advantage of the disruption. It's actually young men and women from completely normal, like suburban even towns in in the capital and doing and then doing the opposite going to the mountains right to be like hey we need help we need you to train us i just think that's such an interesting situation to how that how that kind of um happens um do, do we have any idea of like kind of numbers of of people that have gone to join these groups so that sort of situation actually has almost a bit of a precedent in myanmar previously so okay. the, that sort of that sort of um communist insurgency that i was talking about sort of started again in a lot of these lowland areas. There was a very urban insurgency sort of not long after um, not long after the country's independence. You sort of had communist rebels controlling large parts of Yangon and stuff like that. And eventually they got sort of pushed out and fled to the, fled to the um, 
ethnic areas, the mountain areas, and sort of took refuge in them and in some cases convinced some of those ethnic armies to join that um, communist cause. And that's, that's actually what led to their demise in the end, a lot of factionalization within between the different, different ethnic groups in the Communist Party. Um, but numbers-wise for the actual PDF now, it's, it's really hard to tell because it's, um, I mean, it's so grassroots. There's no sort of, like, I, I doubt even the um, government in exile, the National Unity Government, would have a solid idea of the numbers. Um, but you can sort of look at it in the number of groups active. So a mm. often common, like a commonly cited figure is about 50 active resistance groups, PDFs. I think it's actually a fair bit higher than that. I sort of see, um, like in one township, you'll often have six or seven different groups now that are quite active. So I think it is, I think it's probably sort of pushing a hundred now, maybe even a few more, a bit over a hundred different sort of organized groups that are actually involved in armed resistance. And then you have a lot more groups that sort of have armed fighters but aren't necessarily fighting them or sort of focused on the provision of aid and stuff like that. But I think you could pretty safely say that there's between 50 and 100 different groups that have sprung up and that are quite engaged in fighting the Tatmadaw, the, the Burmese army. Um, and, yeah, it's really hard to put numbers on that. You sort of see different groups um, fielding different numbers. So, for example, the... Um, the, the Kareni National Defence Organisation, I think is its um, proper name, it has, I think, 13 different battalions that it uses across the state. And so you've got, um, and they often fight together, but that, that sort of shows quite significant numbers in that group. And th that group's actually been able to hold their own against pretty concerted Burmese military attacks. The Karen kind of have held their region completely. I mean, if you're there, you're kind of, there's no military in their region. They kind of hold it, right? Yeah. So I'm actually talking about the Kareni rather than the Karen. Oh, so Jesus. There's okay, a, right. There's a, huge, <laughs> there's a huge different, there's a huge number of different um, nationalities in Myanmar. So the Kareni is sort of the people that live in what's now called Kaya State. Okay. So that's see, a bit yeah. north of the general Karen region. And so that's the area, um, the cities of sort of Loikor and Damoso, especially there's been a couple of ethnic armed organizations that have been active there for decades, but they're mostly demilitarized. Some of them actually joined the Tatmadaw God. in the 2000s, which is a whole other, a whole other cup of tea, having sort of some of the previous ethnic armed groups join the Tatmadaw in order to um, get economic incentment, incentives, basically. Um, but yeah, so the, the, the Kareni sort of, <laughs> the Kareni people are different to the Karen people. Um, and yeah, so the Karen people is that sort of long-standing insurgency since the forties that has um, that does have a lot of basic control. But then there are also sort of always that idea of they have the general influence in the area. But the Tatmadaw, if they want to, can send sort of armed convoys through, and they can't really do much about it, except for like sort of mine them and attack them sometimes, which has actually become a very prominent tactic throughout the whole armed resistance. Um, and where, where are the battles kind of taking place? It's not exactly, you know, young men training up, forming the PDF and then moving back into the city, right? Like a lot of these battles, from what I understand, are taking place in the hills, in the mountains, those kind of areas. Yeah, so not so much the hills, but especially rural areas. Mm. So that that's where they've been able to sort of do the most 
I mean, I, I, I think generally when you look at it, where the conflict is at the moment, you can sort of summarise it in a few areas. There's the Chin Hills, which is the West. And so then you've got the um, Chin Land Defence Force, which is, a, again, a sort of umbrella organisation of a bunch of these militias that basically has control of the entire rural areas. Um, and the Tatmadaw can send convoys on roads between big cities but can't really do much during that other than burn a few houses and kidnap a few locals. Um, so I think there was one particular convoy that sort of came under such heavy attack that I think 80, mem 80 different, um, the, the, the death toll among the Burmese military on that sort of 100-mile convoy was about 80 troops and they were only able to move about six or eight miles a day because they basically had to sweep every inch for mines and had to look out for ambushes and get sort of respond to these ambushes. So that that's sort of that's that's the group that started off with these hunting rifles and now they've sort of upped their arms a fair bit. But they still um, sort of do these very insurgent tactics in the mountains, sort of lay the ambushes, have a much have a far superior knowledge of the terrain, the local area, and are able to use that to their advantage. Then you sort of have the lowland Sagaing region, which is um, has basically never had conflict before, not not since the communists, really. Um, but that has sort of the Sagaing and the Magway, re Magway region, which are pretty connected, has sort of exploded, especially um, with armed resistance groups in every township, sort of controlling most of the rural areas, controlling, in some cases, all of the cities and actually having... Um, shadow governance in a lot of places um and so that's all sort of flatlands that's all rural areas there's no sort of there's no cover by terrain there it's sort of just a a, a function of the government not being able to set get the man get the manpower enough to sort of control the whole region so they're sort of stuck in their garrisons doing convoys every few days that then get mined and targeted especially mined in the lowland regions and then you have widespread conflict among some of the ethnic areas. So Kachin, which is a region in North Myanmar, has has been sort of on and off ceasefires for the last 20 years or so um, and on and off sort of levels of conflict. But since the coup, has conflict has picked up there again and local PDF groups are allying closely with the established Kachin Independence Army um, to sort of work together there and you sort of see them you actually see the Kachin Independence Army sort of moving into Sagain and helping the PDFs there as well. Um, and then, yeah, the, the Karen region and the Kareni region, but it's, it's basically, it's a lot of Myanmar. And where there's not sort of this active armed fighting, armed resistance, there's a lot of um, sort of IEDs and bombs going off that target police, sometimes police convoys, sometimes police boxes, sometimes... Um, Sometimes just government sort of infrastructure and government-owned things, such as um, there's a telephone network in Myanmar called Mitel, which is owned by the military, but it's a commercial telephone sort of network, like would all have like whatever service provider our phone uses. And so they've sort of had close to 500, I think, of their telephone towers blown up all across the country as part of this resistance. And so that's occurring where sort of there's not enough or there, there's either too much of a troop presence or not enough critical support in the, not enough critical numbers in the armed resistance to sort of 
send bands of send sort of companies of fighters across the landscape doing their war operations, but they're they're sort of limited to this more insurgent resistance, and that that's largely what we're seeing in the big cities as well. Most days you'll see a couple of gun attacks on police um, positions or army positions in Yangon and in Mandalay. You'll see a lot of um, explosions targeting. I remember there was actually one quite memorable video a couple of months ago of um it was basically a bunch of police mustering to do a morning drill and you had resistance fighters standing on a street outside with 40 millimeter grenades just shoot lobbing them into the crowd and they killed i think about 20 or 30 police in that event so there is still a lot of armed resistance in the cities but it's not it's sort of a different flavor yeah, and th- there are some videos I've seen where the the rebels, they're extremely competent. There's one I'm thinking of particularly where there's about, I don't know, a unit of about 30 of them in broad daylight walking through the streets um, right up to the police station and just boom, just open fire on the police station. Um, and they're moving like, you know, they're trained. They're trained well. You can tell that they've actually trained properly. Like, And these are not just former... Or, or like, you know, Karen rebels or whatever, like ethnic militias that have been fighting for years. You can tell these are young men, some of them as well, you know. So, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but it does seem like they're they're doing, you know, for want of a better word, they're doing quite well in terms of this resistance. Yeah, so there's actually one attack in Yangon that really stands out to me. It happened last August, but basically the the resistance groups... I think it was about five or so of them boarded a train full of police officers, yes. managed to shoot and kill basically all of them, seize their weapons, and then get off at the next stop. Um, and so there is definitely some competence. There, there, there's always that learning curve for these new resistance fighters. They, they, A lot of the training they got was very quite quick and sort of not as in-depth as like you'd expect. It's sort of like two weeks training at most in the ethnic areas and then a new sort of class came through. So they have a lot of they have they have made a lot of those sort of mistakes that everyone would make, such as um it took them a while to diversify their sort of mine attacks. They used I, I don't know the specifics, but they used quite a low power explosive to start with, and it took them quite a few months to sort of start using higher explosives in their um, mine attacks. And there ha- there's been also issue. There's there's been always those teething issues, but they have been quite, I think, quite effective and quite efficient, especially considering where they came from and where they would have been this time a year ago. One of um the Chin defense, the Chinland defense forces. I remember, and I, and this is a whole other issue, but I, I the, take these casualties with a bit of a grain of salt. Um, but one of their snipers claimed to have killed about a hundred Burmese fighters. Burmese soldiers in the in the sort of Chin Hills, um, and this time last year he was a medical student in Mandalay. So there's been a really steep learning curve for a lot of these resistance groups. That has been, I think, overall quite successful. Right. Um, one thing I've noticed as well is there's a kind of weapons disparity. So some groups you see pretty well armed, um, various kind of, you know, Chinese knockoff weapons. I think some have even had kind of black market uh, US rifles. And then you'll see others where the whole militia, they build their own weapons out of like sheet metal. They build their own homemade grenades. They're very proficient at it, but it's it's quite rudimentary. And then, of course, we've seen quite a lot of um, images now of the 3D printed FGC9 gun, the J-Stacks gun. Um, why, why is it then that, you know, there is this disparity with the weapons depending on regions? 
Yeah, so the biggest driver of that disparity is actually how close they are to those ethnic armed organizations, the, the groups ah. that have the guns. Mm. And in some cases, the groups that can very proficiently make their own guns. Um, so, yeah, essentially, it's sort of the slow proliferation of those weapons out from these areas that have always had guns to the areas that where this conflict is new. And you've sort of started to see that more even out. So even the most um most resistance groups now have pretty basic sort of Vietnam era assault rifles, but a lot of them now have proper guns. But it's sort of this this um function of the fact that especially early on, there are a lot more people willing to fight than there were guns and ammunition for those people. So the the guns were sort of slowly flowing out of the areas, both the sort of being smuggled internationally over the, the Thai and India border, but also from the groups that have had have quite a lot of weapons and have well stockpiled weapons. And essentially the ones that they were going to first were grabbing them up first and then it's sort of been trickling down like that. Um, but that, that's actually one of the reasons why the Kareni fighters have been able to do so well, because right from the start, they had quite good weaponry. They had um, quite extensive weaponry. And that was a, sort of a result of them having quite close relations with the Karen groups further south. But also a lot of the kind of defunct or kind of um, inactive armed groups that had been in that area in the 90s and the early 2000s had been quite effective in stockpiling their guns so when the um conflict broke out again and they had people sort of wanting to form these resistance groups and start resisting the military junta they were able to sort of get the guns quite quickly um but you're st sort of starting to see yeah more more groups having more guns now and i don't actually think i've seen that 3d printed gun used in sort of combat yet no there's there's been there's been no footage of that um, I, I'm the reason they use the 3D guns. So there's a lot of people are like, "Well, what's the point?" It's like, well, if you're in a region where it's difficult to get the weapons, then if, and and you have access, you know, to to some of these 3D printed guns. There's some speculation that they're built over the border and kind of trafficked in across the border for for groups and areas that have less access to guns. So you know, having even though it's a nine millimeter pistol, essentially having that is better than not having a thing. And all it takes is one of them to jump into, like what you were talking about in August on the train. If you have one of them, you can kill, you know, however many of, of your enemy like that. Um, and there's also a thing recently that I saw where they found um, 3D printed guns kind of stashed in a bush. Now, my thoughts are maybe that's like a kind of go-to neighborhood, you know, weapon for the militants. Like, right, if we need to do something quick in plain clothes, it's there. So it does make sense. But no, you're right. There's not been there's not been any footage of it actually being used in, you know, an ambush or anything because, I don't know, it wouldn't really make that much sense. But, you know, it, it, it does show that there is a lack of weapons for certain people there. Otherwise, you know, they wouldn't bother building it. Yeah, and it's certainly better than sort of the high-pressure air guns that, they, that were being right. used early. Yeah, um, I think that's actually, though, an interesting thing to talk about, sort of the, I guess, almost the defence industry that sprung up within these resistance groups. Yeah, it's incredible. So um, it initially started with these guns and you sort of had gun factories popping up out of nowhere, but really it's become like this quite ingenious and very, very quickly um, escalated thing. Um, so right now, since um, like since a lot of these groups have started to get basic assault rifles, not not great, but better than what they can build themselves, a lot of this defense industry has shifted to giving these groups new sort of 
strategic capabilities, sort of indirect fire, mortars, and even um, explosives. And actually, memorably, and it's sort of proliferated, it has been proliferating quite extensively this month, um, bomblets that can be dropped from drones. Mm. And so you're sort of starting to see most groups or a lot of groups um, now have homemade mortars, homemade mortar, pl- like mortar launchers, and are able to do sort of quite... Con- not necessarily as effective as a professional mortar team, but at least intimidating um, indirect fire within a couple of kilometres of their position, which is something that sort of they haven't been able to do before. And a lot of that sort of ingenuity and um, experience has come from sort of the, the, the wide swath of people that were willing to join this resistance. So some of it has come from people that have defected from Burmese defence industries and they form a large part of sort of how they guide those that defence industry but a lot of it is also just from engineering students and people people at university and mechanics and stuff that have sort of been able to translate their vocational skills into this defence industry now i remember seeing um one video that was showing sort of this this group that was sort of hiding out in the bush and they'd managed to turn a waterfall stream into a phone charger that's so incredible. It's, yeah, just using like the hydropower from the water from the waterfall. Um, so it's it has been this quite um, ingenious almost escalation of that defense industry from it's from it, what it started off as like quite rudimentary guns to um, quite strategic weapons or at least relatively strategic and also a lot of ammo. Some some of the biggest issues now is getting ammo to these fighters really there's a shortage of that is there yeah so you'll often see it like that was um in kareni state in in kaya basically the the resistance groups took the state's second largest city demoso and were sort of pushing into the largest the capital city loikor had taken sort of large parts of the south of that town sort of and doing quite daring raids into the rest of it but then have sort of had to temper back that um temper back that offensive because they're running short of in ammo and you saw that especially sort of early on in sort of april may june you'd see one sort of part of the country flare up very violently have quite have a lot of results in resisting the military and then sort of quiet down once they ran out of ammo and somewhere else would pick up right um, now, now that there's all these different um, people joining these these ethnic militias, I hate to say ethnic militia, but you know what I mean. Just these different factions. Um, I guess, I guess there's not really any issues then with them and the whole, you know, the the reason that these militias were fighting in the first place. Like, have they kind of just said, right, we'll, we'll take any of you, you know, if you want to fight the government, or is it, you know, lads go into their kind of specific background if you like for militias. Yeah, so the whole ethnic issue in Myanmar has always been a bit of a, it's been one of the more sort of effective parts of the military propaganda over the Mm. past few decades. There was this idea that all of these ethnic armed groups were what was spoiling Myanmar's prosperity, what was preventing it from becoming one country. And there was this idea that it was the ethnic rebels that were at fault, um, not the military. And so... The, the coup has largely challenged that. So it has sort of taught a lot of the younger generation, especially to empathize with these ethnic armies and to sort of understand that 
they they have been fighting the Tatmadaw for decades now that and now the sort of mainland not the mainland now the sort of majority Burman population is only just starting to see this brutality sort of targeting them um so it's brought a lot of solidarity and you've sort of seen this push towards genuine federalism yes. and federalization in a way that sort of a lot of basically was very fringe and very not accepted in Burmese politics previously. Um, but there is still a long way to go. And because the um, NLD, which is the, the National League for Democracy, the government before the coup, they'd spent that five sort of to eight years of increasing democratization, still marginalizing these ethnic groups and still sort of denying them a lot of the political representation that they wanted and keeping them politically and economically and socially marginalised. Um, and they, they played a pretty solid part in that. So because the, even though the conversation has shifted, a lot of the sort of pedigree of the National League for Democracy into the new National Unity Government, the sort of new government in exile, um, there's a lot of apprehension in the ethnic groups about partnering them and there's, there's still a lot of distrust. And to the NUG's credit, it's sort of, been quite successful in forming these um forming these committees these very important guiding committees that incorporate a lot of these ethnic voices and sort of seem to be doing everything right in saying that we we, we do sort of recognize the errors of our ways before and we want to have a much more inclusive parliament going forward we want to go into this federalism but there's still there is still is a fair bit of distrust there yeah, I can imagine. Although I would say, I doubt that, you know, there's many, I, I don't think they would distrust just, you know, young men coming from the city being like, help, right? I guess it's on a bigger scale. Yeah, yeah. And for sure, when sort of you had those, you had those activists fleeing originally, pretty much, not every, but most of the ethnic groups were happy to sort of say, hey, take shelter now, the areas we have under our control, we'll train you up, we'll, we'll do all of this. So yeah, it, it has sort of, it's a, I guess it's more of a distrust at a systematic level mm. and a worry that the government in exile will accept concessions that make the future political scene still not what the ethnic armies want. Um, but yeah, from the ground, you've sort of, you have seen very quite close coordination between some of these ethnic armed groups, especially the KIA and the KNLA um, and PDF groups that operate in that general area. And I'm actually, it's something that I don't know much about the details that I'm fascinated by, but you've got the Kachin Independence Army in some large townships in northern Myanmar, and then you have a parallel people's um, PDF group, People's Defence Force um, militia that's active there, and they're very closely coordinated, and I think they sort of fight under the, they always fight together, and I think they fight under the same sort of command, but there's like the notional difference between the PDF and the KIA and it's, it's quite interesting to see. Definitely. The, the irony is that the, the brutality of the military junta has actually coalesced people to come together and then say, right, let's forget these ethnic differences. Let's fight, you know, the powers that be that are, are standing on our head. I think that's kind of ironic that it happened that way. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and for decades, the, the Burmese military has sort of pursued this four-cut strategy, which is a really sort of brutal and oppressive strategy that's attempt that's always attempted to sort of cut 
these ethnic armies away from people, food, support, and money. Mm. Um, or I, I can't remember if that's exactly what those four cuts represent, but basically cut them off from support and supplies. And so that's re that's required sort of the forced relocations of hundreds of villages sort of at gunpoint, the pretty, pretty brutal siege tactics um, in ethnic areas. And that's sort of what, in many reasons, that's why these ethnic armed groups have been so enduring and haven't been able to be defeated because they sort of, the, the, the military shows its brutality at every point. And now those tactics are being used on the Burman people that sort of have been this large polity before that were um, exempt, exempt from some of the worst, I guess, violence by the military. And so now you're sort of starting to see all of these people realize the realize the, the the true human cost of a lot of these military moves and also the military doesn't really have enough manpower to actively cut these um, resistant groups off from people supplies and everything so it's sort of using this antiquated um, and quite violent strategy in a way that doesn't really work and that's what a lot of sort of the defected soldiers have said that what a lot of the difference is that the Tatmador can't really adapt. It knows its way of fighting. And it knows how to fight in that way. But the, the, the threat that it's facing now through these widespread armed resistance is different to anything it's faced before. Right. Um, and whilst we're on this kind of ethnic topic, maybe just explain briefly, you know, why is it Myanmar slash Burma? Where, where did all this kind of erupt from? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I kind of think a lot of people sort of put more weight into this than it needs. Um, but Burmese, so it's always been called, it's traditionally been Burma since independence, it was called Burma. Um, but sort of Burmese has a casual form and a formal form. So the language is different if you're speaking casually versus if you're speaking formally. Mm. And so the casual way to say it is Burma and the sort of formal way of saying it is Myanmar. And so in the 80s, shortly after, I, I can't remember the exact date, but I think it was shortly after there was another sort of um, protest, student protest movement that was brutally put down and a sort of new military junta came in, a new military dictator came in. Their, one of their things was we're going to change the name from Burma, the casual form, to Myanmar, the formal form, which doesn't really have huge ramifications. and. Burmese people will call it both in different circumstances. I, I generally call it both in whatever sounds better in the sentence. Yeah. Um, but I think it was sort of seen as this, this um, not accepting this decision to change the name is a way of delegitimizing a government that people don't think is legitimate that made that change. Um, I think a lot of the more sort of more substantive sort of um, name changes that have happened have been the ones that have actually affected ethnic areas. So the Karen region is now called Kayin in all the official maps. The um, Kareni region is now called Kaya in all these official maps in sort of this way to kind of separate the nomenclature of the country away from and take that power away from the ethnic groups. Right. Um, we, we've spoken a lot about the the Tatmador. Um, we've probably I should, I should have probably asked this sooner, but maybe maybe can you explain what they are? So the Tatmador is just the name for the military. So just in Burmese, the military is called the Tatmador. So they sort of fulfil the normal 
duties of a military, but they also sort of, then there is the more complicated aspects where they do have the sort of police militias. They have the border guard force, right. which are former right. ethnic militias that have now joined the Tatmadaw. Then you have sort of other pro-government militias. You have the sort of um, informant civilian militias. You have the military's political party militia. There's all sorts of stuff. But the Tatmadaw itself is just the the name for the military. They're unbelievably brutal as well, right? I, I saw someone sent me it without saying a thing, and I was like, right, thanks for that. But um, basically this horrific video where they caught some rebels and, you know, I have to say it because what they did. They, they'd cut off this guy's limbs from the knee and the elbow, and he was just sat there, and they're just filming him bleeding out, and they're just laughing at him like... There's, there's another example where I think they went into a village recently and just burnt everybody alive. Like, this is a really fucking brutal junto, right? Yeah, and in many ways, the, the Tatmadaw sort of lives a parallel life to normal Burmese citizens. They sort of have their military encampments, their bases that in, in some cases are, like, bigger than the villages that they're next to, but they don't really leave that. They sort of have their own military schools, military hospitals, and it's, it's this massive indoctrination process bring people to be this brutal. Um, and so you sort of have this, yeah, this widespread culture of brutality. And I think, I mean, you, you've seen it basically every day since the coup. You've seen some sort of horrific, violent attack by the military that, that you think, how can a sort of normal, per how can a person do this? It comes from these sort of decades of indoctrination um, and this this total um, separation from the reality and this total separation from the rest of the country. Right. Um, and what, what have they said kind of politically? What is their stance right now? I know obviously they've taken over the country, but are they kind of saying, oh, it's in a transition or that's it now? It's like we're here, we're the dictatorship. What? Or is it, are they kind of being more tactful than that? It's a bit of both. <laughs> um when they took over, they said, yep, we're the transition government, we're the caretaker government, we're going to have elections in a year. Mm. That's now been pushed for two years. It was then pushed to three years. Like, there's there's no sort of... Right. And they've also sort of very openly talked about outlawing the other political parties other than the military-affiliated USDP party. Um, so, yeah, it, there is sort of this nominal sense of... We realise that we should say that we're a caretaker government, but there's really no sort of... um no sort of ceiling on that and there's no there's no there's an understanding in Myanmar that that means nothing that lip service so that is sort of we're here for good now and you've seen previously sort of when military dictators have taken hold they've stayed for decades mm. and so it's not over the top to that to say that this is um an out and out totalitarian dictatorship now yeah so there's um one of the, th I think an anecdote that sort of tells that quite well is there's a new law that they're sort of drafting that will ban VPNs from someone's phone or from just ban VPNs. Yeah. And basically sort of let people access all the websites that have been blocked. Um, and so I heard a story and I, I, I don't know if it is true. So I should, I should say that, but I heard an anecdote sort of, there were three people that were stopped at a military checkpoint. One of them was fine because they had a VPN on their phone. The other one didn't have a VPN on their phone and they were sort of, they were fine because they'd just, they'd clearly just removed it from their phone, according to the military. So they'd said, oh, you don't have it on your phone, but you must have just taken it off. So we'll fine you anyway. 
Mm. The third didn't have their phone and they, they got fined as well because um, there was this idea that, well, if you didn't have your phone, it means you have a VPN at home and that's why you didn't bring it out. So we're going to fine you as well. So it's, it's very much this, and this is all from a draft law that still hasn't been put into effect yet. Um, so there is this totalitarian sort of rule that doesn't really follow the rule of law um, and is in many ways sort of a, a cover for a lot of the sort of tap Maduro on the ground to do their own sort of extortion in many ways. Who's the leader of this? Is there one specific leader right now? Yeah, so there's there's the person that led the the coup, Min Anhlang. Yeah. I don't know if I said that right. Yeah, I think so. Um, but Min Anhlang is the sort of person that is the head of the tap Maduro that did it. But there's this whole um, SAC, I think it's State Authority Council or State Something Council, um, that sort of nominally rules but it is very much sort of a one-man dictatorship at the moment backed by him and sort of the, the people that enable him and what's what's he what's he saying is he like out there talking or is he kind of this this shadowy figure still he's out there talking a bit but it's mm. it's very sort of it's not very useful things that he says um it's sort of he'll put a speech in the the state-run papers that sort of talk about the legitimacy of his laws sort of his law talk sort of talk about the perceived um, rigging of the 2020 election um, and all of this sort of stuff. But there's, I, I, he's not like, I, I guess he's just sort of taking up normal political duties in the extent that they can with this resistance. And I think that's actually an interesting thing to note sort of how much this resistance has been able to get in the way of normal governance. So even, even the sort of higher up, I remember, um, a couple of months ago, there was a, the, the state tourism minister was trying to tour a beach in the country and in a part of um, the country that has sort of not really seen much violence, one of the safer areas, and his convoy got targeted with mines a couple of times <laughs> driving back from there. So there's, there's very much this idea that um, I think especially in the upper echelons, but also generally throughout the military, there, there's danger in leaving these sort of sanitised, controlled areas. Right, that's interesting. And what's the response from the people? Are there people that that like really support the junto, or is everybody kind of just having to live under it? So I, I think it's pretty fair to say that the resist the opposition is pretty universal. When you look at sort of the election results, it's genuinely stuff like high eighty percent of people voted for the um, NLD, the, the not military party, and most of the other 12-15% were people voting for various ethnic parties that are again not the military um so i think it's fair to say that there isn't much grassroots support but there is sort of this network of often military families often sort of affiliated with the old administration system for that democratization mm. and families like that that sort of are quite pro-military and in fact that, that's actually the basis of one of the most important pro-government militias the pusorhiti and that's basically a civilian militia that's sort of been armed since the coup and is sort of this central part of the government's intelligence gathering facility because they have these members in most towns. Um, and then there is also sort of some townships like particularly linked to certain industry that's very government run or particularly linked to sort of large military installations within the area that are quite pro-government. But overall, I think it's fair to say that there's there's almost 
it's it's quite universal the opposition the military there and i think that's what the that's what the military itself didn't really foresee the scale of this um opposition because they sort of as i've sort of said before they're they're living in this sort of isolated quarantined part of the world of myanmar where they don't really have much connection and opportunities to mingle with the rest of the population and that sort of talked themselves up into thinking that they had a lot more genuine support than they did. And um, what what's the situation with uh, the the former leader obviously they 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 overthrew her she was under house arrest for a bit. Where where is she now? Yeah, so I think I think she's still under house arrest. She's yeah. been sentenced I think 8 or 12 years in prison at the moment, but I think I I'm actually I I have to say I don't particularly care for her that much. <laughs> no. So um, no. I'm not totally across what her current situation is, but she's either I think she's detained in, in home detention which is how she lived most of her life um and she's being sort of very much tried for pretty pretty mock in pretty mock trials and sort of being given four year sentences a pop um i think one of them is because she had walkie talkies that she wasn't meant to or something and she got four i think she's getting four years for that but yeah so the, she's sort of currently detained but I, I i think the the government's decided that it's not wise to make an example of her mm. and in sort of how the same way that the government for 30 years before the democratization kept her under house arrest but knew that they couldn't really hurt her because she does have this this so much adoration within the country well yeah let, let's talk about her briefly because obviously the junto is very bad but she was no angel i know she won the fucking nobel peace prize which is useless anyway but she, she's she's been bad right she she was um in charge when um the rohingya were, were massacred right yes yes she was um yeah when that that genocidal violence happened and yeah. i i think the un peace prize needs to look at how many of their recipients have gone on to commit genocide <laughs> yeah i'd say but, but um i think yeah she she has always sort of lived and I, this might be unpopular to say to a lot of burmese people that are listening but my perception is that she's always lived with the idea that the best way forward is to compromise with the military mm. and to sort of form this common understanding where they can come to this sort of power sharing agreement similar to that sort of semi-democratized status that Burma had um from 2015 onwards and so her father was actually Aung San who was um one of the major sort of independence leaders at the dawn of the country or at the dawn of independence mm. um and he fought with the japanese and then the english in world war 2 and sort of sort of launched the country's um launched the country's independence in many ways um and so i think you can sort of see that she has always been within these military circles even though he got assassinated by the military he was sort of adjacent to it and she's always had this idea of i guess reform rather than um reform rather than overthrow and sort of this idea of compromise with the military which is sort of in many ways what led to though that massive violence against ethnic groups during her law she was like well this is this is what the military has control of they're very passionate about it i don't want to get in the way of that um and is another reason why there was sort of so much failures during her um term in terms of um reconciliation and agreements with the ethnic groups because she was too 
she was too much on the military side for there to be any sort of long-term agreement that took place under her. Um, okay, what's what's the situation then internationally? Um, I know you said at the start there that, I mean, it, it seems to me as well from what I've noted, no one really cares. But but Myanmar does have links to, to various different countries across the world. What What is the situation there? Like geopolitically, how are they sitting now with the junta in, in control? So it's been pretty quiet. The international community hasn't really done much. Um in order to sort of hold the junta accountable for anything. I think in terms of the biggest sort of, the best thing they've done, especially for the resistance community, is to not really accept the junta. They don't really recognise it, and very few countries recognise it. I think that when um, Burma celebrated its Independence Day, something like five countries, all of which are very, all of which sell arms to Myanmar, only I think five countries sort of sent congratulations and there's basically in the international community, even among ASEAN, which has always been extremely don't rock the boat, let countries do what they want. We form, we only exist by consensus. Even they don't, haven't really recognized the SAC as the government of Myanmar. Mm. And so I think that's been quite effective um, sort of China has quite close links with Myanmar. It is always, Myanmar is basically its avenue to the Indian Ocean. There's major economic programs sort of trying to get Chinese goods to ports in Myanmar to then send them out through the Indian Ocean. Um, and so that sort of has continued through the coup in many ways. Um, and especially early on, China was sort of a lot of, China copped a lot of, um, opposition within Myanmar for this stance where sort of some Chinese factories got burnt during the protests and there was this idea that um, China is on the side of the military and that that largely seems to be playing out but I'd say China is more on the side that they think is going to win rather than one side in particular they they want to have good relations with whoever controls the country in five years and so originally that was the military, they they sort of decision makers in China aren't really great at conceiving a popular uprising. And so they sort of automatically sided with the military. But I think in the years since they've sort of started to see that maybe the maybe the popular opposition won't win, but they're certainly going to have a long-standing influence in Myanmar and have sort of started dealing with the government in exile more directly. So for example, um I think they recently contacted the National Unity Government directly and said, hey, can you ask all the armed groups to not attack our pipelines going through Myanmar? Um, and China also has quite close relations with a couple of the long-established but not active in combat ethnic armies that, oppose, that sort of have their own statelet within Myanmar, the most important of which is the, um, the UWSA, the United Wa State Army. Um, which itself is an offshoot of the Communist Party before. Um, India itself is also quite interesting. It's always been, I guess, almost neutral in that. They, they mm. issued a lot of, say, a lot of um, Burmese refugees have gone to India and have sort of been welcomed there, but they're also sort of starting to do the some level of normalisation with the Burmese military. They're sort of referring, they're, they're sort of, starting those motions of recognizing the Burmese military. Similar in which, Thailand um, as well, right? Yeah. So 
Thailand's another complicated thing yeah. where there was a military coup in 2014, which sort of still holds power. And so I think the, I think, um, Prayut Ocha in Thailand isn't necessarily keen in setting this example of people overthrowing a military junta. Mm. Um, but there is always a lot of sort of, um, I think you could call it solidarity between the people of Thailand and Myanmar. And in many ways, I think that extends to large factions of the military and large factions of the government. So they haven't, they, they don't really formally recognize the SAC and there's a bit of a nuanced um, situation there. But I, I, one thing I should also say about Myanmar now is, I mean, India now is that I think, I think we've sort of started to see in the last few months, the Burmese military sort of offering safe haven and even partnering with rebel groups in the Indian Northeast in sort of Naga in Manipur, in Assam sort of region and sort of offering them safe haven in exchange for helping them become a militia against the um, armed resistance groups there. And so that has the potential to sort of upset a lot of these changing dynamics in India as when it comes to recognition of the junta. And it's actually um, in, I think it was in 2015, actually, the, the Indian army sent this sort of quite daring commando raid into Burmese territory to attack a um, Indian rebel group that had, was headquartered in um, Myanmar. And so there has always been that tension along the border. And I think in recent sort of months, you've seen the Burmese military, I think almost out of desperation more than anything else, sort of try and partner again with these Indian rebel groups to sort of get it to sort of oppose the armed resistance in Myanmar. It's a very complicated situation, man. Like every facet of it has you know, different routes here, there and everywhere. It's really complicated. Um, but I think we've covered most of that. Is, is there anything else you want you want to talk about? I think maybe one thing that would be interesting to talk yeah, about course. is the role that the, the 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 success that the armed resistance group has had in, the armed resistance groups and the PDF have had in dismantling the state organisation within the rural areas especially. So you've had, um, and it's 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 not always the prettiest thing and in many cases it has sort of resulted in abuses of their own but the pdfs and the armed opposition have sort of gone on this very large assassination spree of key sort of government leaders key military informants and key um key sort of facilitators of the military's rule mm. in a lot of these urban townships so for example i was talking about the um pusorti militia earlier which is the one that sort of brings a lot of this intelligence and this local knowledge to the military and enables them to use that against the armed resistance groups pretty much every day a solid number of those militia members are being assassinated are being killed and it's sort of very rapidly dismantling that sort of grassroots intelligence and grassroots government that the military has and so you've also seen that um, positioned, you've also seen that sort of used against local government administrators that in many cases have always been cosy with the government. Um, and so that sort of combination of assassinations and broad threats of violence have basically made the entire administration structure resign in quite a lot of townships. The, the, PD, the local PDF group will go, 
um, village administrators, ward administrators, township administrators, village tract administrators in this township, you have until this date to resign or else we'll start considering you a target. And whenever that happens, wow. like a solid majority of the, um, the the military's governance in the region resigns. And so it works. It, it has been remarkably, I guess, successful at achieving their aims. And mm. because of that, they've sort of been able to establish their own shadow administration in a lot of areas. So in the Chin area, one of the townships is called Mindat. And something like three quarters, I think it is, of the villages there now have a school run by the armed opposition groups and their affiliated sort of governments, like the, the National Unity Government-led um, curriculum. And you sort of have shadow, you have shadow sort of um, administra civil administrations coming up in a lot of these areas as well because the, the armed resistance groups have made it impossible for the... Um, military's administration to operate there and i think that's sort of one of the more surprising and i think very strategically important things that this armed resistance group has been doing and you've even had townships of yangon where basically every local administrator has resigned at, with uh, um after these threats of violence and now there's it's it's sort of hard to suggest how much relevance they have on the ground, but there is there is in many cases a lot of this shadow administration that happens in the rural areas and that sort of nominally exists in areas that the government doesn't control anymore. So it's definitely, I, I, it's it's hard to it's hard to gauge where this is all going. Do you know what I mean? It's like okay, they're very effective um, and they're extremely well organised, but the military does have extreme power as well and not just in terms of holding politi politics but in terms of um, militancy weapons that sort of thing w what do you think is going to happen do you think this is just going to go on and on and on like the you know the, the previous civil wars or do you think i don't know do you think they have a chance the the, the rebels i think it's hard to sort of th this year is going to be the important year i think in sort of setting the tone for everything more generally um so there, there has, I, I think sort of what it relies on is this critical mass of attrition and defection within the Burmese military to make this hold by force, this hold by iron fist sort of impossible to maintain. And you've sort of had some success in defections. Um, apart from by all accounts, the morale within the military is sort of record low they're sort of being forced to, they're not being told what they're, they're not being told their mission, they're just going to, they're being told to go into this town and then their commanders are being told to burn it. They're sort of not able to move around the country without mines going off all the time. They're sort mm. of struggling in some place, in a lot of places to get food and to get supplies. So they're going military. hungry. The military is, yeah, because wow. they sort of, it takes, especially like in areas where there has, there is a sort of more established opposition control like Chin or Kayan regions. Um, it sort of, it takes a military convoy, like they were, the military convoy is moving at about six, eight miles a day, not very far. No. Um, and so basically in a lot of these areas, all the resupply is having to happen by helicopter. Um, and so that's really making them ration it and sort of, affecting the um, morale in a lot of ways. Um, but so far, there hasn't really been any major defections. 
there hasn't been sort of whole units defecting. It's sort of been a soldier getting away while they can run away in a place where they can run away and then joining the opposition or just demobilizing and dearming and going back to civilian life. Um, so that would be a thing that could potentially change this strategically, change the centre of gravity and sort of make the make success by the opposition seem a lot more likely. Um, and actually just today it, it emerged that there was a defection of 11 people at once, which I don't think I've ever seen before. And, of course, that's not whole huge numbers like battalions, brigades worth. It's but it, It's showing... Yeah, it's, it's the first sort of occasion I've seen a small unit defecting sort of in a in a large in a sort of relatively large number. Another thing is the attrition. I think is really sort of starting to hit the Burmese military. So you sort of have leaked documents from even as early as April in the year showing that across this division, um, on average. Each battalion, which should have about 250, 300 people, actually had about 80 people that could do fighting. And you've sort of had reports of entire battalions being destroyed by, these are often by the ethnic armed groups rather than the civil resistance forces. Mm. But it's sort of, you sort of see that there's a couple of hundred um, light infantry battalions across Myanmar. If each one of them has 80 people, it's certainly a lot less of a formidable force than a lot of people are imagining. And sort of everyday opposition are reporting between sort of 50, 60, 100 military people killed every day. So there is this real strong hit of attrition from the military, which I think they're struggling to recoup from. So sort of in my mind they're going to sort of have to give up control a lot of the of a lot of the more rural regions quite soon. I think they have limited control over them already. Sort of there was a leaked speech that came out of a um sort of a provincial level um army officer saying that about four or five I don't know, sorry, saying that about six of the townships in that prov in that province, which is quite a small province were completely out of the hands of the military, of the civil, like the military administration. And it's, you're sort of seeing similar things happening in a lot of the rural areas across Sagaing, across um, Kayin, across Kachin, across um, Chin, and across Kaya region. Um, but the upshot of that is I suspect they're going to start relying a lot more on air power. That's going to sort of start to be this shift towards just air striking the areas because they know they can't sort of have this freedom of movement for the military ground forces. And so I think that's going to be quite, that's going to have a lot of deleterious effects on the civilian population as we've seen in Syria. It's, it's, it's kind of a very similar thing to what we saw in Syria where the government had to pull back from a lot of the rural regions, sort of ceded that to opposition control and then used large you used airstrikes to basically ferment terror and make life impossible in areas under opposition control and that's what i sort of worry is going to happen mm. um and potential i i don't really see in the short term anyway opposition becoming established in many of the major cities that could always happen but it would require sort of widespread 
defection or demobilization of the armed of the military within those cities and we haven't seen any signs of that yet but again traditionally the last three or four months is when the burmese military does its most of its fighting for the year it's sort of the fighting season when the roads are wet enough to allow them to sort of do maneuvering do operations and in that time they launched sort of several operations that were designed to snub out the resistance in those areas there was one in chin state there was one in northern sagaing and all of those were abject failures where sort of a lot more there were there were hundreds of military casualties during those operations and very few sort of casualties among the armed resistance so who knows what the next sort of the period when the traditionally the military can't do much outside of their bases which is sort of traditionally what's happened in the fighting with the ethnic armed groups in the wet season and in sort of may to in sort of april to sort of august there's very little movement that the military can do so this was an important time for the military to the last few months has been an important time for the military to sort of establish control and um become the major actor in these areas again and they haven't been able to do that so it's it's a bit up in the air what the next six months is going to bring but i i think it's probably going to sort of lead to this position where the armed opposition is a lot more has a lot more significant control and probably has a lot more sort of grassroots administration popping up but can't wrest control of a lot of the larger cities out of the military's hands yeah totally um, there, there's also been, in my opinion, it's evidence that the military are losing grip in, in rural areas where they started just burning villages down. Now, I know some people might say, oh, well, that means that, you know, they got close enough to do it. But that, that's not what you do if you're in control. You don't go in and just burn down a village. To me, that screams, you know, struggle. They're struggling. You know what I'm saying? So that's sort of that continuation of the four cut strategy. They go, this village supports the opposition Therefore, we're going to deny this village sort of food, housing, shelter, supplies, man, manpower, access to things, and we're just going to burn it. Mm. Um, and so that that's sort of a continuation of what they've done for the last 30 years. I don't, I don't necessarily think it shows weakness in and of itself because that's sort of what their tactic is. Right, um, just, just to destroy the resources. And in strength, yeah. Okay. But I think it's, I think it's very sort of telling that um, the military can only operate through these regions by sending out a quite large convoy. When you see the videos of the convoy going past in these sort of lowland areas where there is the burning, they're going at like 80 miles an hour as fast as they can, trying to avoid all the mines. Um, and they can they sort of don't have the operational reach and manoeuvring to do anything other than visit this town maybe set up base there in the in the high school there for a few days, um, make everyone flee and burn a bunch of houses. And that's pretty much all that they're able to do. And so that's what they are doing. Okay, mate. That was really, really helpful. Thank you very much. Um, if people want to see more of your work on this, I think you're doing great work, by the way. If people want to see what you're doing, um, how, how can they do that? How can they contact you? Yeah, so I put uh, most of what I do goes on Twitter eventually. So that's um at n rg8000 um and i'm also doing some work with a group called myanmar witness which sort of looks to verify a lot of the footage coming out and sort of 
yeah, basically just verify what's happening there. And if and they do really good in-depth investigations into certain atrocities and certain things. So if you're interested, definitely check out what Myanmar Witness is doing. Brilliant. Thank you very much, mate. Appreciate that. No worries. Thank you. That was researcher Nathan Rusa speaking to us about the developments over the last year in Myanmar or Burma regarding the resistance to the military junta in the country and the many war crimes and attacks that have been carried out. Definitely check out his work. He's very good. I'm a big fan. He's doing great stuff. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us on the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash popularfront. We do not accept corporate investment and we don't have advertising from any shady fuckers. So the way we make money is the Patreon. We're also completely demonetized off of YouTube because uh, YouTube says no can't advertise on that because you know you're showing war the realities of war and youtube only allows either big corporate uh, media to advertise or ridiculous bullshit so there you go yeah if you can support us that is really appreciated you get a lot of extra content patreon.com slash popular front this episode was sponsored by oracle coffee shop in portland oregon usa they're an independent coffee shop coffee business selling only fair trade products see them at 3875 southwest bond avenue 97239 the episode was also sponsored by grind core house a pair of independent coffee shops in philadelphia usa one in south one in west find them on socials at grind core house the episode was also sponsored by propagandopolis an outlet selling and writing about historical conflict propaganda from around the world you can buy prints at propagandopolis.com use the promo code popularfront10 for 10 percent off also check out the popular front section there we have some uh, posters there that are specifically um popular front stuff you know things we've we've photos we've taken in the field stuff from our documentaries the jstat poster is there all sorts propagandopolis.com follow us on social media instagram at popular.front or if that goes down the backup is at popularfront underscore same as our twitter on twitter it's at popularfront underscore if you want to follow me on anything it's at jake underscore hanrahan h-a-n-r-a-h-a-n you can check out my work um with various different uh, outlets at jakehanrahan.com oh yeah also the youtube youtube.com slash popular front definitely check out our documentaries music in this episode the intro was by home and the outro was by sam black and tiago Deason. check out samblackpf.com and instagram at t-h-i-a-g-o-d-e-z-a-n um yeah thank you to our high tier patreons they are username nthg845829 if you can change your username that'd be much easier <laughs> but no worries if not uh tom taylor ethan zwick champagne anarchist twat elise middlefer lewis david mcmanus joaquin williamson holt Idoye travis tom petrie james leons kate lisa milgram bradley davies brendan crave pete hesher rx a. Nicole, Travis Lieberman, Cherry, Ben Marshall, Dallas Dunn, LD50 Seattle, MJ, K. Glitter Vulcan, Meredith Waters, Bethany Swoveland, Adam H., Carante, Bjorn Kirsten, Diamondstein, 
Michael O'Connor, Zach Picard, Dodd, Todd Cravens, Nicholas Butter, JD, Jav, Ian Froes, James Cully, Tynan Daly, Ethan, uh, Shanklin the Painter, Fitz Madrid, Ed Coulthard, Mike Barone, Liam Williams, The Generate Zero Alpha, Giorgio Arani, DR, Trey Nance, Amy R, Rubicon, Frank Austin, Amelia Mee, Nawais, Nate Van Dor, Christina Rivetti, Freya Northman, Noah, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin, Young Wasabi, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, JL, Stephen Davila, Anthony Kabarak, Dan Dunham, Fletcher, Diana Govanek, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, and Moritz Zumbu. Thank you all very much. Really do appreciate it. Without you lot, this would not be growing as rapidly as it is. Thank you so much. Patreon.com slash Popular Front.